Good morning, good morning. That could have been just a little more enthusiastic, but that's all right. Hopefully this afternoon it'll be a little more enthusiastic, all right? I know most of you don't know me that well, but uh, we're going to have a wonderful day together. I already love you. I think uh, you'll eventually love me. And uh, because we're Christian, not because I'm that lovable, but because we're Christian. All right, and I'm prepared up, the, up here this morning because I'm going to be talking about grace. And some of you, your mind goes like mine does to one extreme or another. You know, oh, he's one of those gracers. You know, there's gracers and there's sinners. Or, I mean, gracers and, uh, you know, hardliners or whatever it, it, it is the opposite of that. But I'm not really a gracer. I'm a gospeler. And that's why I had to put in their gospel grace. Because you're going to see how that ties together in the, my teaching today. And, uh, but uh, uh, I am equipped. I told you I came equipped. I brought a mirror. And no, I'm not narcissistic. Yeah, I, how could I be with this face? All right. But I have a mirror. And I have the word of God. And if you're ever going to talk about grace, you better have the Word of God so you have the authority of heaven, so you have truth, so you have gospel. But you also need a mirror because you need to be able to see yourself and apply whatever you're going to say to yourself. And in the last... Uh, 40 years I've been a disciple, about 35 of those years as a minister, I uh, have been on a, a great journey. And I'd say in the last 10 especially, God has taught me some things about grace that I'm very excited about. I uh, have begun a book uh, on this, and someday it'll be done. <laughs> but when you're in full-time ministry and have other things going on, that's not the high priority. So uh, we'll get, I'm not going to promise anything about a book, but it has begun. All right. And guys, I'm not going to say a whole lot new, just I'm going to say it differently this morning. All right? Because sometimes we miss the obvious. It's, you know how Sherlock Holmes always set up uh, Dr. Watson? You know, he'd, he'd ask him these questions and and Watson would try to get it right, and then Sherlock Holmes would tell him the right answer. Well, you know, they went out camping, Dr. Holmes and I mean, Dr. Watson and Sherlock. And uh, all of a sudden, in the middle of the night, Sherlock Holmes wakes Watson up, and he says, Look at the stars! Whoa! What do you think about that, Dr. Watson? Dr. Watson decided, I'm getting this right. And he starts talking about all the different galaxies and the d speed of light and the distance between stars and the, and the billions and bill billions of galaxies out there. And he went on this long treatise about uh, astronomy. And he was so proud of himself. He knew he has got it right. He has told Dr. I mean, Sherlock Holmes off this time. He's not set up for failure. And Sherlock says, No. Dr. Watson, look, we can see the stars. Someone has stolen our tent. 
Guys, don't miss the obvious, all right? This morning, I'm going to say some things that you're going to, it's always been there, but sometimes we miss it, all right? Sometimes we miss it. This morning, gospel grace. All right, I, I've got my clicker, and uh, we're, we're going to work on that. Uh, in Romans 3, a verse very, very familiar to all of us, all right? It says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And all are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. We know this verse. If I sat down with you and asked you enough questions, and I'm trained. I'm a trained interrogator. I, I'm a professional counselor, a, a professional marriage and family therapist, so I know how to ask questions, all right? I have a daughter that's an attorney, and uh, she's taught me a little bit about the Socratic method, so I know how to drill down and find out truth. I even know all those little ticks and behavioral things about when people lie and what direction and we're up, down, over, left, right. I know all that stuff. All right? And so if I quizzed you, if I questioned you, if I got into your life, if I drilled down, we would end up agreeing you're a sinner. <laughs> and I'm a sinner. But the other part, the second part of this verse, is it says we're freely justified. Greg, there ain't no free lunch. There ain't anything free. I mean, I don't know where you were raised, but that's what my daddy always told me. Ain't no free lunch, boy. You need to learn to work hard. That's why he gave me chores and pulling weeds and cutting weeds and all these seemingly meaningless tasks that ruined my childhood. <laughs> you know? All the other kids are playing. What about, and then I grew up, and I, and I learned about Erickson's stages of life. And I thought, I got cheated because children are supposed to learn how to play. And, it, and, 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 it, and it's called, it's called a, a free play. <laughs> that if they don't go through that developmental stage, they're screwed up. <laughs> no wonder I'm screwed up. And then there's some people, they never get out of the play stage. You know those 40, 50-year-old guys like that? Yeah, yeah. All right. Well, let's look in the mirror now. Be careful. All right. So we're going to talk about being freely justified by his grace. Amen? What is grace this morning? What is salvation? What saves us? If sin separates us from God, then what restores us? What does it mean to be saved by grace? How do we gain grace? What has shaped our personal understanding of grace? What has shaped our understanding as a movement in the discipling movement? How have we experienced grace? How has it gone from our head to our hearts, into our souls? What questions do you have regarding grace? We're going to try to answer some of those this morning, all right? You ask a doctor of the church, one of the teachers in the kingdom to come, he better have something worthwhile to say. And if he doesn't, well, ask somebody else next year. All right. Here's the better part of my life. Here's my wife and two kids and uh, my first granddaughter. This is Kathy 
I mean, for years people would say, you know, I really love Kathy. I really like her. And Greg, he grows on you. <laughs> so this really is, when I say my better half, it is true. She's got one of these calm, sweet temperaments. Everybody likes Kathy. And the way she says even tough things to people, it's like nobody gets mad. I try to tell somebody the truth, they get mad. So I have learned a lot from my wife. She is an amazing professional counselor. A lot of what I've learned about counseling, I've learned from her. And then the, the other daughter there with Kathy is uh, uh, the one that's an attorney. She was so sweet till she went to law school. <laughs> and then she learned how to argue. And sometimes we'll talk, be talking about nothing, and she'll just kick into that lawyer mode. And I said, stop, 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 stop. Mandy, this is, let's not argue. And she goes, oh, sorry, Dad, I argue with guys your age that look like you all day long, every day. <laughs> so I'm so glad she got married because now he puts up with that. Uh, <laughs> no, she's still sweet to her daddy. She's daddy's girl. And the other one is Megan, and she's our youngest, and she lives in Dallas. My wife's not here today because... It was our second granddaughter's first birthday. That takes priority, all right? And uh, she's representing both of us. This is uh, the, the first one of when she was about a year and a half. I'll show you this next picture. This is them now. The one on the, the left is Sienna, and I chose this picture because she's got personality. We were down in Orange County watching the Christmas boat parade, you know, that's a California Christmas for you. You know, you, it's hard to get in the spirit with uh, palm trees with Christmas lights on them, you know. So we want to watch the boat parade of all the Christmas lights. And she's the weirdest little three-year-old. She, she's, she's so funny. She, she all of a sudden busts out. She, she gets in this mode right here. Gets, gets her arms pumped, and she goes, This is such a great opportunity! And unfortunately, we really fell over laughing about that. And so she started saying opportunity all night long. All right. But she's a sweet little thing. And then the one on the left is, uh, her name's McKenna. She's probably going to be St. McKenna someday. I mean, my daughter got blessed with just a, a really temperate, sweet little. She turned one yesterday, so uh, I just thought I'd show you that. What's that got to do with grace? Softens my heart. All right, so here's what we're going to do. Part one, I'm going to get into it here at the beginning, and then part two, and the rest of part one will be this afternoon, definitions of grace, paradigmatic scriptures, that's just the doctor's word for foundational scriptures, all right? History of grace, theological perspective, that's the big picture, theological. Theology, cross-theology, and a theology of grace. And this afternoon is really the good stuff, so I, you got to come back, all right? That's personal grace and a grace-informed life, grace-informed ministry. All right, the Greek word grace is charos, charos, a gift, a favor, a credit, a kindness, a benefit. It, it literally means to bend down and reach out and give, all right? The Hebrew word, word shin means to accept or extend favor. The Latin word gratia, where we, where we get gratitude, is charity, gift, but it's always free. 
And you got to understand the ancient world. It was a, a patronage system. There were people that, there was sort of like the one percenters and then everybody else were poor. All right? There were the rich people, the landowners, the government officials, the ones that had stuff, and then there was everybody else. And they made the schools, they offered the roads, they cleaned the water, they provided all the benefits, and that was their patronage. And then you got indebted to them in ways. You, you, you were a patron. You had to show two things, loyalty and gratitude. All right? And then they'd give you stuff. And that was the ancient world. There were patrons, and then there were, there were uh, uh, those that received it, that received the patronage. And every once in a while, the client, the patron and the client. And in between, there was a broker. And in some ways, that's how grace is understood in the Bible, because God's the patron of this free gift, and we're the clients that received it, and Jesus is the broker that's provided it for us, all right? So a lot of verses are sort of understood through that lens when we're talking about grace. You know this story. We're not going to read all of it. It's in your notes, but you know it. The story of the woman caught in adultery, all right? And the religious people, shame on you if you're religious. Greg, get the mirror out. Well, we are and we aren't. I have a relationship with God. I'm not trying to be religious. I didn't go to college and become a Christian wanting to be religious. I didn't even become a Christian and want to be a preacher. My roommate's dad was our preacher, and so I decided that's the last thing I want to be. He even got fired while we were living together, so <laughs> I really didn't want to be a minister. But God has plans and destiny for your life. All right? But they weren't accepting of Jesus. And sometimes when we think we know God's will, and the Pharisees of Jesus' days Jesus day, the legalist, and th this is sometimes what's juxtaposed or put opposite of grace, is legalism or law. Law and, and mercy. Okay, so the legalists of Jesus' day rejected him. And so they're trying to set him up to sort of prove this guy's not speaking for God. All the way through scripture, you need to sort of see a lot of these conflicts are about who's speaking for God and who's not speaking for God. All right? And Jesus says, I'm speaking for God. And the Pharisees say, no, we're the ones that speak for God. And they're constantly testing him, so they bring this woman that's, quote, caught in the act to Jesus. So she's pro probably brought about half naked, unfortunately. I'm sorry for that image. But to humiliate her and to shame her and drug her through the streets and bring her to Jesus. And you know the story. And they question jesus they say jesus what are you going to do with her and jesus doesn't answer in fact he starts playing in the dirt it was sort of a sand tray experiment for those of you that are psychotherapists and work with kids no he starts writing in the ground and i tell you i thought when i went to graduate school they were going to tell me what he wrote in the ground I mean, isn't that what you're supposed to learn? 
all the answers? All right, so we don't know what he wrote, but I've got a little bit of an idea. I think he wrote either a list of sins or he wrote down the crowd's names and maybe their major sin next to their name because he knew knows all things, right? What would cause him to walk away? I think something he wrote in the ground made them walk away. Remember he said, he who is without sin cast the first stone. Because guys, that was the law. If there was no grace, that was the law. All right? This episode in Christ's life illustrates his desire to extend grace and not condemn this woman caught in adultery. The narrative is significant for several reasons. Here's a few. Verse 4. Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. So she's guilty. According to Exodus 20 and verse 14, you are supposed to stone. Not stoner, stone. All right. uh, come on. That was funny. <laughs> it's a hard crowd. All right. We'll soften you up. I know some of that language is from the 60s. <laughs> In fact, if you, if you want to be nice, it's my birthday this week. All right. I'm not going to tell you my age. Because when you get to my age, you hope people think you're younger. You know, oh, you look so good. And that's a relative thing. Compared to how you used to look, have you lost it? Anyway, all right. Verse 5, in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. They said this, confronted Jesus with it. Now, what do you say, Jesus? Her punishment should have been death, but also her partner should have been put to death. According to Leviticus 20 and verse 10. Where's the man? Takes two to tango. All right. There were two guilty parties. Maybe he was their friend. Maybe it was even one of them that had set her up so that they could set Jesus up. People can conspire and be pretty evil in this world, if you haven't noticed. Verse 3, it says, The teacher's law and the Pharisees brought in a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group. Why is that? To shame her. The hypocrisy of the situation was that one was accusing her but not the partner. Deuteronomy 22, 22. When they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone who is without sin be the first to throw the, this stone. And Jesus challenged the crowd to judge her fairly in accordance to their own righteousness. Guys, I don't know about you, but Satan, the Bible says, is the accuser of the brothers and sisters, the accuser of mankind. And most of us, when we look in this mirror, this is my contact mirror. It had a little stand, but I have to put it flat and put my contact in, you know, poke my eye. And uh, so he's the one that's holding up the mirror to each one of us. And he's saying guilty, dirty impure, lustful, addict, porn addict, liar, stealer, thief. 
And there's some tapes going off. I know enough about psychology and enough about religion, having been a minister for 40 years and a counselor for 10, that people have, we all have secrets. And secrets make you sick. They make you sick emotionally, mentally, physically, and spiritually. But there's very few (coughs) safe, secure places for us to tell people. I counseled 30 teens for three years in a drug rehab center. It was a diversion program. They either went to prison because they had three felonies or they came and had to talk to me (laughs) for 90 minutes about spirituality. Teens love talking about spirituality, (laughs) especially with an old guy. And I figured out every 10 minutes I had to do something different, something fun. So we did a lot of music, a lot of videos, a lot of poems, a lot of discussion, all these, every 10 minutes, especially for an addict, a kid that's an addict, you know, hyper kids, you know. That's funny too. You guys are not <laughs> light. I know you were at church, but still, all right? You, 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 gotta, you gotta have fun. It's sort of like the ancient story of Aesop. It's an ancient, he was in Athens, and, and there, was, there, there was somebody very critical of him, and they were critical of Aesop and said, why do you play with children? You know, you're wasting your time in such frivolous activity, playing with children. And Aesop picked up a bow, and he unstrung it, and he set it on the ground, and he said, okay, tell me the riddle of the unstrung bow. The guy says, I don't know. And he goes, the bow has to be unstrung and lighten up or the next time you use it, it it will be weakened and won't be taunt anymore. And so I play with children so I can do my more intense work. So every once in a while, you got to lighten up. See, I thought this was a kickoff workshop when i found out it was a jubilee i said oh bummer they thought they're gonna come and have fun and i'm coming for them to work <laughs> so i call mine in my church a workshop all right anyway but here's what satan wants you to see about yourself all right shame Down deep, I believe, in every single person, there's shame, even if you're a Christian. We've taught very well to relieve you of guilt. If you'll repent, if you'll confess your sins, if you'll be open, if you'll come into the light, your guilt can be cleared. Your conscience can be clean. But that's not most of our problem, guilt. Because we deal with our guilt. If we didn't deal with our guilt, that's on the forefront of our minds. We would be haunted. We'd be doing drugs, something to numb ourselves, over-recreating something, playing all the time, doing something to get that off of our mind. But what's deep down in our core, in the back of our minds, in the subconscious, not the conscious, is shame. And it's these little scripts and, that we learned as a kid that have been piled on later in life that define 
what we think about ourselves. And nobody but Jesus Christ is perfect. Revelation, revelation for you this morning. And everybody has some criticalness of themselves. And unfortunately, especially women, we are so hard on girls and women in our society. You've got to look like some airbrushed model at, at 16 to 18 years old, or you're just not beautiful. It's not true. But all these lies of Satan and all these images and pictures that we're supposed to compare ourselves, men are supposed to be, you know, superheroes. They're supposed to be hard workers, totally in shape, rich, physically fit. That's a bummer. All right. There's just so many measures, guys. And so deep down, Satan's always got us because of shame. Always got us. Verse 8. Again, he stooped down and wrote on the ground, Jesus is slow to judge us. That's the point. There's a lot of theological profound points here that we've missed. He's not quick to judge her. Verse 9. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first, until only Jesus was left. With the woman still standing there, two witnesses are necessary for conviction of an offense. Deuteronomy 19.15, Matthew 18.16. Christ commanded to not commit we're, we're adultery. Jesus even said it. Matthew 5.27-32. And then... Uh, Matthew 19, other places. Stoning was the method of death, Leviticus 24, 14. So, what's going on in this story? Verse 10, Jesus straightened up and asked the woman, Woman? I don't know why, I mean, I don't usually call people woman. (laughs) That's that's not a real, I I sort of say please, or or, you know what I mean? You got to be careful now. Ma'am, they think you're, saying they're old so, so it changes but Jesus said woman where are they has no one condemned you no one was willing to testify against her after Jesus challenged the mob they were bloodthirsty they wanted to kill somebody that day verse 11 no one sir and then Jesus said a statement of grace then neither do I condemn you Jesus, it says in Scripture, declared. I want it to be very clear to you, sister, I don't condemn you. Jesus was the only one left to accuse her of adultery, and he chose to give her grace. 11b, go now and leave your life of sin. Why, another sort of carrot or burden to place on her? No, no. Now that she's clean, she doesn't have to get dirty again. Now that, now that she's seen how empty that life is, go be your best self. He's, just, he's not trying to burden her. He's trying to encourage her. Start over. You got a fresh start. It can be good now. It doesn't have to be what it was before. This might have been one of the Marys. One of the Marys that washed his feet. One of the Marys that had many sins. One of those Marys we do know is a prostitute. We don't know exactly who this is. But she was 
on the Green Mile. She was convicted, guilty of capital punishment. She was condemned to die that day. She was standing before Jesus and that mob knowing that those were her last breaths. And then all of a sudden, she got more than free lunch. She got pardoned of capital offense. That's gospel grace. And it's in story after story and interaction after interaction throughout the New Testament. That's the good news. People that are guilty, condemned, they've done it. They have no hope. The story's been written. According to law, they're cooked. And Jesus says, I don't condemn you. I don't condemn you. That's pretty good stuff, isn't it? So are you condemning yourself this morning? Listen to all these verses, Ephesians 2, 4 through 7. In order, verse 7, in order to, uh, verse 5, made us, he made us alive in Christ when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The common Christianity of grace is unmerited favor. I like the acrostic, God's riches at Christ's expense, grace. Augustine said, God gives where he finds empty hands. When you come to God guilty, he forgives you. Ephesians 2, 4 through 7, we're saved by grace. Ephesians 2, 8 through 10, it's a gift. All right, we're going quickly. You have all this in your notes. Romans 2, for the, for the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed and the righteous will live by faith. Galatians 2, uh, where because of Jesus' death we're forgiven. Titus 2, that grace teaches us to say no to sin, to leave that life of sin, as illustrated what Jesus said there to her. And that we've all sinned, Romans 3, and fall short of the glory of God, and yet we're freely forgiven. So what is grace? What is the power of grace this morning? All right? It is. Grace is a gift, freely given, and needs to be faithfully received. Grace is justification, means just if I'd, justified, just if I'd never sinned. All right? Grace is redemption from the consequences of sin. We're redeemed, we're bought back, we're excused. Grace is atonement by the sin, from our sin because of Jesus suffering for us. Grace is transformative to change us. Grace is motivational to inspire us to good deeds. Grace is cleansing to clear our conscience. And grace is salvation providing a relationship with God. We're going to get into so much this afternoon. I'm going to introduce it here to you. But we've got to finish this this afternoon. But... If you go through the scripture, the history of grace is a lot of the Bible, especially the Old Testament, because it was based on law, is you had to be obedient. So we have this real performance mindset that we've got to earn grace in our movement and in Christianity across the board. 
In the patriarchal age, they got grace through obedience, okay? All right, through obedience to the promise that uh, God gave Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and even Adam, and, and before that. During the Mosaical period, you got grace by keeping the law, all right? So the hermeneutic, or how you viewed Scripture, how you interpret Scripture, was through these different pro, uh, patriarchs. And there's a pendulum in history of it moved more and more towards legalism, towards keeping law, towards performance, okay? And that's what I really want you to see as we go through here. During the gospel period, the way that you received grace was you, had, you put your faith in the lordship or deity or the divinity of Jesus Christ. And then during the church period, by accepting the sacrifice of Jesus, you got grace. Okay, so the hermeneutic was to, to under, believe Scripture was inspired by the Holy Spirit. All right? <clears throat> and then in Catholic Christianity, and some of us have that background, the great, grace sort of got hoarded by the church. All right? You get, the grace is, is, comes from church then and only comes from a priest. All right? And that's how they controlled people and controlled the empire. That's why the Roman government merged with the Catholic Church. Because so, governments are always looking, how can we control these people, especially because we just conquered them and they hate us. So how do we control them? They use the church. All right? So the church, you got grace through sacraments. The priesthood extended grace to people. And so if you did one of the sacramental system is, and many of you know it better than I do, is, all right, baptism, confirmation, the Holy Spirit, uh, Holy Communion, anointing of the sick, confession, holy orders, and matrimony. That's the only way for thousands of years Christians understood how they got grace. Okay? And then Luther came along and says, that doesn't sound right. That sounds extreme. That sounds like the Pharisees. That sounds like law-keeping. And then he went to the other extreme, the pendulum swung, and he said, God gives grace to everybody. In fact, it's called impudiated grace. That's what Luther called it. We're impugned with grace. You can't re resist grace. I'm forcing it on you, God. In, in Luther's mind, that's how he felt God extended grace to all of us. And that if we'll just have faith, the righteous will live by faith. He, that was his doctrine and understanding of grace. And I'm leading up to our understanding here, so stay with me just a couple more minutes. And if you look at the biographies of a lot of these theologians, you understand where their doctrine came from. It was very personal. Luther was the most guilt-ridden priest in the Catholic Church. He drove his superiors nuts. He kept asking, what can I do? I don't feel forgiven. They had him cleaning the whole monast monastery with a toothbrush, and he still felt guilty. He beat himself to death. I mean, he flagellated himself, and he still didn't feel, gra feel grace. And they kept teaching him scriptures, his superiors, the other priests. And finally they said, we don't have anything more to teach you. Go become a professor, a, a teacher in the church, and you figure it out. So they kicked him out of the, the, the monastery. You know, he had been a monk. 
And they sent him off to Wartenburg College to teach. And they said, you find your own answers. We're done with you. So he says one day, he's riding his horse, and lightning strikes a tree next to, to him, and it frightened him and the horse, and he fell off, and he had an epiphany, and it was from Romans 3, 18, 17 18, the righteous will live by faith. I've been trying so hard, I'm already forgiven. I don't have to do nothing. And I'm done with this. And so then he posted on, on Halloween, October 31st, 1517 his 95 theses on the Warrenburg church door and that's when the reformation movement began and his hermeneutic was anything that doesn't talk about grace in the scriptures isn't scripture so he threw out the whole book of James he said that's just a book of straw and he went to this extreme and that's what people understand as gracers that you're just forgiven and you can do whatever you want. Calvin built on that, all right? And he, he talked about tulip, total depravity. And he was influenced, his biography is Black Plague hit the, hit the world. And he's seeing this God that didn't make sense. How could God let a Black Plague kill everybody, good and bad? It should just kill the bad people. But it's killing women and children. And so he finally, he could either turn his back on God or he finally came up with Tulip and said, hey, we all deserve death, so that's why God's killing so many people. We're totally depraved, all right? And then there's some, though, that are good, and we don't see how good they are, but God does, so there's limited atonement. There's this elected people that have God's favor, and they're forgiven, and so there's limited atonement, and, and those people that get that limited atonement, it, it's because of irresistible grace, and then once they're forgiven, they're forgiven. That's Calvinism. That's reformism. That's almost every major denomination in the world right now. If they're not Catholic, they're Protestant, and that's what the Protestants, the protesters, understood from Calvin and Luther and teach. And this is our history, though. This is our understanding of grace comes from this. And then the first and second great awakening in America caused people to start viewing grace a little bit different. And they started thinking that grace, it was, I call it revival grace, okay? Revival grace. And it was, they'd go to these big crusades, usually by a river, you know, go down by the river, and they'd start a big bonfire, and they'd get all... They'd start singing, they'd get all worked up, emotional, and then some preacher'd get up there and guilt them out, you sinners. I mean, real hatchet men kind of preachers. I used to be good at it. I, I used to travel the country. They'd ask me, you know, to do the sins sermon. And boy, you know, I'd get red-faced and start spitting a little bit when I talk. No, I mean expectorating, all right? That's why now people say, Craig's going to talk about grace? Isn't he the hatchet man? You know? And the pendulum didn't swing too far, but it has swung in my life. And I'll tell you a little of my biography this afternoon when I have more time. But they started seeing that grace came from repentance. And then our movement, the restoration movement, started. And we came out of a very enlightenment mindset modernity where we it was a whole movement called primitivism 
it, it means go back to the ancient way. So our movement is sort of built on go back just to the text, to the Bible. Be Christians only and follow the Bible only. And, but look at it from a very enlightened way and find the formula. And so in our movement, we've come up with the formula, the pattern, the perfect teaching, you know, of how to become a Christian. All right? And so we give grace if you follow the formula. And you and I could quote it, hear, believe, confess, repent, and be baptized. And if you do that, that's the formula, and you get grace, right? And then in the discipling movement, we adjusted that a little bit, okay? In the discipling movement, we said you get grace if you do that because Jesus is Lord. And we called it disciple baptism, not just baptism, but disciple baptism. And we, we tightened the formula, all right? And, and, and uh, so our formula was... More specific, though, just believe, confess, repent, and be baptized, a five-finger exercise, all right? Believe, it matters what you believe. Jesus is the Son of God. Confess Jesus is Lord, meaning make him Lord of your life and be a disciple. Repent of your sin. Be baptized as a disciple. Give up everything. Go anywhere. Do anything for Jesus. And live like a disciple. And I would think most of you would say, amen, Greg. That's right. That's the right formula. And I don't want you to change your formula this morning. I'm just going to add a little more teaching to it to, in a, in, a, in a sense, make it whole or more complete. Okay? Don't be like Dr. Watson and miss the big point. All right? Grace, I believe the cross of Christ is the fulcrum the focus of all scripture. It's the high point. It's the climax. It's the point of history where God proves himself. All right? And if most of us would say, why did you become a Christian? Oh, the cross study. I fell in love with God. Right? All right. So, theology just means the study of God. Uh, you can do theology by the mighty acts, creation, to second coming, to all those things that's in your notes. Or systematically, theology, ecclesiology, ecclesiology, serontology, all these things you don't want me to go into, all right? Or the big story, a meta-narrative, new creation, exodus, chosen people, Messiah, justification by faith, sovereignty of God, apostolic succession, sacraments, or day of the Lord. That's, all those are listed, all the different churches. But I'm proposing to you this morning that we should understand grace and salvation and forgiveness by the cross of Christ. And very simply, it's really simple. It's really simple. It's death, burial, resurrection. See, if I decided really smart people ought to make the complicated simple, and maybe that's because deep down I'm still a kid and I just need it simple, but all this study, I went to graduate school for 15 years, tells me it's really simple, Greg. The death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus informs me of my life, informs me of Christianity, informs me of God, informs me of how to do ministry. And it means death, there's got to be a reckoning, righteousness. God is righteous. The burial says God is faithful. And thirdly, 
The resurrection says God is merciful or gracious. I'm going to leave it there this morning and pick up after that this afternoon. But I can worship a righteous, faithful, merciful God. And I think you're going to get even more excited to do so as well. Because it's going to be, the good stuff is this afternoon. That's a commercial. God bless you. (laughs) Amen. Oh. I'm supposed to pray. All right. Usually at church, I drop the mic, walk off. But we're, this is communion. So let me pray for our communion. I'm sorry. Uh, communion's not a flippant thing. It's very sacred. So bow with me in prayer, and let's center ourselves on Jesus. God and Father, we bow before you now, and we're ready to take your emblems, your symbols. We see this as a righteous, sacred ritual to remind us of the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Jesus dying on the cross, shedding his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, being buried for three, three days, wondering if good will conquer evil, wondering about your power. You promised that you'll raise him, but him having to trust as we must trust. And then being resurrected, Father, to eternity, so that every one of us would know that we'll be raised as well. That all of us can be new creations now and into the future. Father, thank you that through communion we know that we can conquer death, we can conquer Satan, and we can conquer our sin. That, Father, that you've paid the price for us to be our best. And so, Father, thank you for this time to remember the death and the burial and resurrection of Jesus through the bread that represents his body and through the juice, the fruit of the vine that represents his blood. Bless it to us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.